0: It's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. You know beyond
1: twenty a twenty mile radius of where you live in Manhattan. You know, and I think that's right. But you know, the problem you have is the the civil innovators dilemma, right? For Wall Street, they've had such success over so many generations doing things this way, and that's why you you see startups like us hopefully disrupting the large incumbents because how can they justify innovating and risking the risking everything for new ways of doing things when that's what's provided the the you know their their bread and butter for so so many generations.
0: Today on the show, I've got Darren Chate. Darren, tell us about Hugo. Yeah, thanks,
1: Jess. One place for meetings, notes, and tasks. So we see ourselves the meeting productivity platform. It allows teams to centralize their meeting notes and and organize their, themselves around the way they meet. So calendar-centric note-taking for teams.
0: So I, I was sold because I'm like, you know, I was watching your video and I thought like, man, we have so many calls and it's just like endless Google Docs that are really long. And like my my admin and producer who like do pre-bios for sh- this show where I'm like, oh yeah, who's on next, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, oh, who is this one again? What's going on, you know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. seeing your use case what was really like personally relevant for me. One thing that I, I didn't understand as much is, is it a separate app or integrates into my Google calendar? Or t- tell me how that works.
1: Yeah, sure. So Hugo is a web app, a separate web app. You log in, you log into Hugo itself, but we do integrate your calendar. So we bring your calendar data into Hugo and use that um, at the core to take notes. So one of the pain points that we we had originally was there's a million ways to take notes and everyone does their own thing. You might be a Google Docs guy and I might be an Evernote person and she may be a, a physical notebook person. But the, the problem you have when it's fragmented like that is it's impossible to to recall anything and obviously that that important knowledge leaves with the people or gets stuck in their process. So the unique insight for us and there's a funny story how we got there came from using the calendar at the core. We 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 take the the calendar data. So who you're meeting and when you're meeting them and use that to organize those notes. So even though it's in our own web app, your calendar data is coming in. So as you take a note, we're going to go and file that against Jess against your particular business or show or, or fund depending you know what, how, why we're talking and then whoever meets you next whether that be me or one of my teammates
0: has all those insights along with the actions ready to go and so well tell us how you've met your co-founder first
1: yeah so Josh my co-founder I've known for most of my life we went to high school together and we worked together actually in a non-profit context before we started Hugo we we ran a pretty for nonprofit in, in Sydney we had uh, about 150 people involved volunteers and Josh and I work together in a sort of quasi professional setting. And we often talk now about managing volunteers is actually, believe it or not, a lot like building a startup team, because it's not about the money. Um, it's about that common mission and passion. So we really enjoyed working together. We we, we found we complemented each other and knew we were always going to do something. And as soon as our pain points aligned, we decided to start Hugo.
0: Yeah. Well, can you tell us about some of your, your higher profile clients? Because I know you've got a bunch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So today, there's teams at Dropbox, Spotify, Shopify, Atlassian, Nike, all sorts of big brands using Hugo. I, I think you know that they're obviously great brands, and and the larger the company, the bigger the problem. But I think what's been, to be honest, other than the marketing benefit, more interesting are some of the smallest startups that we've seen grow exponentially while while using Hugo. We obviously want to we want to power teams that are on fast growth trajectories. I think organizational process breaks as organizations scale very quickly. So there's been startups that have, you know, literally out of the gate with three, four people um, signed up for Hugo since we started or launched a product two years ago, who are now at five, six hundred people. And those for me are probably even more interesting than the Nikes and, you know, Atlassians of the world.
0: Yeah. So what is it that you've learned by seeing their growth with it? Yeah, I, I
1: think it's when we go and talk to these teams and understand, obviously, there's product insight for us. And, and you know, you need to do different things for teams of different size, just focusing on enterprise features, security, SSO, things like that. But, but more interestingly is how their teams have scaled, where the pain points are and organizationally what they're doing well. We know, and it's certainly confirmed our thesis, that meetings are at the core of how teams work. It's a place where you get in sync, where work is determined and allocated, where you circle back um, to what you've previously agreed. And we see that certainly being the case and proved out time and time again. And I also think it's been interesting to see different organizational design. You know, pre-COVID even, we saw teams that were completely distributed and and, and remote. You know, during and perhaps post-COVID world, we've seen teams that are that are staying that way and trying to identify best practice amongst those teams has been super insightful. Both for us and our team, we're only 15 and and, and we're obviously figuring out the best ways to work, but also at a thought leadership level for us to be able to write great content and and, and help others build their teams.
0: You know, it is such an interesting space um, because there are so many options out there, but yet somebody can come up with something that is super helpful but user-friendly can have like a Slack type success story, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's funny. I I think it's, it's a tough space. I mean, you know, if you said to me, I'm going to go and and build a B2B productivity or collaboration product, I would, I would be scared for (laughs) for you as I am for myself. I I think it's, it's, it's very saturated. There's tons of tools out there. Having said that, the challenge isn't making money in the early stages, I believe it's, it's creating habit. It's finding a product that's sticky enough where people get, get, get into the groove and come, can't live without it. And that for us has been the biggest challenge that we've obviously cracked to some extent at this point. But I think that's I think that's really tough. It's also deeply personal. The way people work and manage their priorities and organize information is something that's unique to each of us. So trying to solve a problem in a way that makes sense for everyone is, is, is hard. And one of the best bits of advice we got early on there was, was based on a great article we once read about opinionated tools. The best tools out there have a strong view on the best way for you to work. The tools that will do anything in a super flexible way and that will fo- follow whatever you do are typically a lot less successful than those that say, hey, Jess, this is the best meeting workflow. This is how your team's going to be successful with meetings. Follow this process, and this bit of software is going to enable that. And if you think about the JIRA and the Alassian products of the world or the Slacks of the world and the, even the CRMs, that's what they do.
0: That's an interesting insight because, you know, thinking... You know, you guys have got these companies, Spotify, Adobe, Netflix, right? And you're going to show up and say, Netflix, this is how you should be doing it better, you know, and and obviously it's worked, right? Yeah,
1: I I think we like to see ourselves as experts in meetings. I mean, it's what we live and breathe, right? Like Netflix, for example, is well known for their incredible organizational culture. They've really codified that. But they don't spend their days and nights dreaming about meetings like, like we do. And we also have the benefit of talking to all these different teams and all these different companies. It's kind of funny, we, about a year ago, we started a Google Doc for ourselves internally of all the ideas we'd heard from from great teams um, around team culture. So lots of tips and strategies and ideas to build great team culture. And we thought we're having these conversations all day, every day with customers and the like. We should capture them. They're really great ideas for ourselves so we can build a better team and leverage what we're learning. And this Google Doc got really, really long and we decided to release it. So we turned it into this book. We call it 10X Culture. It's on Amazon and there's you can download a free ebook version of it on our website. And it turned into this short book full of ideas for how teams are building a 10x culture. So, you know, these are great companies that are great things, but the value is in aggregating them and compiling them and bringing them together. And that's why I think we're in a position to know what sort of best practice from a meeting standpoint, even though these companies are far bigger, more successful and 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 frankly, more impressive than the
0: stage we're at. So I just put my email in to get that 10x culture book. So thinking about all that and thinking this, like, there's so many people who they say, hey, this solution worked for us. There's, there's in the tech world, there's, you know, it's it's hard to find a startup that doesn't think their idea is great, right? There's not so many that go from zero to 20,000 customers that fast and win fast companies, 10 most innovative companies for 2021. (laughs) (laughs) right? What do you, what do you attribute that to? Or what do you like, let's talk about the fast company thing. When you think about why they chose you out of the obviously hundreds and hundreds that they could have, what, what, what do you think gave you the edge to win an award like that?
1: Yeah. So I'll just say firstly, I think we've made tons of mistakes. We've wasted a lot of time, a lot of money, done the wrong thing over and over. And unfortunately, when we read press and hear these stories, you only hear about the one decision you made right rather than the 10 you made wrong. So I definitely have to say that. I think it's one of my personal pain points about the tech crunch effect or the Twitter effect where you just hear these amazing stories. But the, the one decision we made right, I think, ultimately solving a, a problem for ourselves. We started, Hugo, focusing on a different part of the meeting workflow and the meeting life cycle. And it was wrong, frankly. I don't think there's a big enough problem or a big enough opportunity to solve for. And while we we're trying to figure out how to pivot, out of that, we, 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 we tried to solve a problem for ourselves to work better as a team. It was actually a Slack integration with Google Calendar that pinged me after every meeting and my co-founder and said, hey, you just met Jess, what happened? And you just reply to the Slack bot with a few notes and it would automatically get shared with the rest of the team. And overnight, the whole team was completely aligned, as if like we took the whole company at every meeting and everyone was on the same page. And that was a real problem for us. Team alignment, in especially in a difficult time, was a real pain. And, of course, our customers got more excited about that than what we were working on, and that became Hugo. So the, the takeaway there, I think, as far as innovation, is solving a problem that you have that you care deeply about and hopefully other people care deeply about and if you can create value for yourself, well, if you are, unless you're some very obscure niche sort of business or, or, or in a space, there should be many others like you. And I think that for us is what's driven innovation solving a real problem for ourselves and then finding that we're not alone.
0: Yeah. You know, pulled up the, the book already here and I, I like your opening quote by Eric Wan from uh, Zoom. You know, we, we had him on the podcast a while back before everybody knew his name. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and I'm so impressed with that guy. Like he yeah. is so customer obsessed. I think the the name of the episode, we named it how to get 140,000 customers with zero marketing, just because it. he hadn't spent any money on marketing at that point. And yeah. it was purely just obsessive customer service. And like when people would cancel, he would write them personally and be like, I'm the CEO. I'm really sad you're leaving. Can we talk? And they're like, haha, funny bot. He's like, no, it's really me. Can we hop on a zoom right now? And then like people are just blown away and and stayed, you know? Absolutely, like-
1: absolutely. I still, when I upgraded my team to a paid Zoom account, maybe two years ago, I got an email from Eric and had the exact same experience. Literally, you know, we were spending maybe $150 a month and Eric's typed this email and responding and looked us up. Not even a thanks for upgrading. Like actually like great to have Hugo and we're both in the meeting space. Like pr- pretty incredible. It says a lot about the organization. And now it's a household name. My, my grandmother talks about Zooming, you know, each other and the like, which is quite incredible.
0: Yeah. So uh, just a quick question. Is your co-founder back in Australia as well? Or is he still in San Francisco?
1: No, he's back in Australia right now. We, we've, we flew back together. We were planning to come back for a week vacation in March 2020. And here we are in right now, April 2021, still, uh, still on our week's vacation in Australia.
0: We're, hey, we talked about me getting stranded in Sydney. Sounds like you're stranded in Sydney. Like you said, but there's worse places to get stranded. There's worse places to be stranded. I'm originally Australian. That's
1: my accent. But I've been in the Bay Area for about five years. So came back and, and stuck here. And it's been a really interesting lesson, actually, and learning curve. We have a team that's predominantly in North America. And we are in a completely different time zone at the other end of the world, running a company from here. And we've learned a tonne.
0: Well, I'm interested in any of the insights because our team is based in Western US, Western Canada, Hawaii, and the Philippines. So I'm interested in any of your insights of, of cross time zone lessons.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest non-obvious insight—I mean, there's tons to be spoken about with time zones and managing your calendar better and the like—but the biggest insight for me has been, I think, a trend that's happening anyway that's been exacerbated by by COVID and, and and time zone differences like this one, which is the move to asynchronous collaboration. We all come from, you know, a background, and both you and I come from a corporate background, so that's particularly bad, I guess, with where where meetings are core to what we do. We spend most of our day in meetings, and we both need to be in the room. whether that's a digital room like this or a physical room to, to, to collaborate. The way the world's going and there's some great businesses out there like Loom, and, uh, and, and and others where we can send videos and we can communicate in a way that has the same bandwidth. So you can still see me, you can hear my accent, you can see me jumping up and down with excitement or me despondent with, you know, uh, in despair, whatever it may be. But it happens on our schedules. So when I wake up in the middle of the night with an amazing idea and I can't wait to tell the team about it, I can record a Loom video. It'll sit there for the team to see. And then when they wake up, they can, or, or in the afternoon or whenever they're most or least productive, whatever works, they can watch the video and get the same message across that typically I would have gone and scheduled 15 minutes, which is always 30 minutes to chat about in real time. It's not to say you don't need meetings. We're in the meeting space. I'm first to say you need meetings, but you only need meetings for for discussion, decision-making and and those real-time processes. You don't need that to share ideas, to to, to give feedback and, and collaborate in that way. So this move to async, I think, has been one of the bigger biggest enablers for us working across time zones. We don't need that much overlap because we can still communicate in the same high quality way, even if we're on different schedules. And you know what? Even when you're on the same time zone, it's had a big impact. I have a two year old. It's nice to be home for dinner and bath time. And and uh, if I want to share, you know, share something later on at night, I'm not demanding or determining that others have to be on. We have engineers who aren't morning people like many of them. So at 7 a.m. when I want to get, you know. Get 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 into my work for the day. I don't need them online to be able to give feedback on a recent ticket or bug. So I'm pretty bullish about um, the future of collaboration being asynchronous.
0: You know, can you can you talk a little bit about? Your background and the law and and this kind of stuff in any ways you feel like it's been an advantage to a tech startup.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I come from a background as a as a corporate lawyer. I studied law in in Australia and worked for four years in a in a large law firm. And I the, the two main pains for me that got me out of there, I think one, professional services is tough and the way you create value has very sort of you can say misaligned or difficult incentives. You need to sit at your desk to to do work that has a time value and and that's the way that you make money. And That's really it's like the opposite when you think about software, right? I can write a line of code. I can't really but if I could, you can write a line of code that then gets run millions and millions of time creating value for so many people all while you sleep. So the way you can leverage your time in building a company software, particularly, but not necessarily is really awesome as compared to professional services. And meetings, which is one of the main drivers for us to say, Hugo, is the worst there because not only do you, is the core of what you do meet people, you spend your whole day in meetings, you can actually measure the cost of meetings. Like I, I, I like, you know, vividly remember walking out of a meeting that was a complete waste of time where I didn't need to be there or perhaps the meeting didn't need to happen. And then you can literally see in your billing software that that just costs the client $6,000. So we all know the cost of bad meetings, but it's literally in your face. And that's, that's something you need to law and professional services. So that was the, one of the main drivers to, to both of those things to get into entrepreneurship and, and start something with Josh.
0: Yeah. I, I'm just having a flashback when we were running our fund in Canada, we had the biggest law firm in the country, Gowlings. We were working on a new oh, oh, offering memorandum and, There was this meeting where I was like, I don't know, it was like an hour and a half. And I'm sure each of these lawyers are like 500 bucks an hour, right? So um, there's four of them and three of them are just listening in. And I'm actually the one structuring saying, can I do this? Let's let's Tetris this. And after the meeting on my way, I was like, did you just bill me for those other people too? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm the one who brought the insights today. Let's go ahead and not do that again. Okay. It's so broken.
1: And you know what's funny? I think there's two things. Yeah, one is the the cost of all those people sitting there. But ultimately, even if they were free, right, even if it was just one person charging their time, do they need to be in that meeting? Like, yeah, they maybe got value from the insights, but- Couldn't you have recorded the meeting? Couldn't you have taken notes and shared it? Couldn't you have found another way for them to get value from the insights without sitting there for the two hours or however long it was while you were in the room? And that was a lot of the drive for Hugo. That's why we believe meeting notes are at the core of what we do, because you can go and capture that value, share it out via Slack and the like, so others can get the benefit of the meeting without literally blocking out that two hours on their calendar. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about, you know, zero to 20,000 clients. I'm sure it's more than that now. But what, you know, product market fit gets talked about all the time, right? But it's not everything. You know, like there's, you know, history is littered of better product that didn't get adopted, you know? If you if you do have a better solution, but people don't know about it, it's pretty hard for them to become a customer, right? When you think about breaking through the noise in, in a space where there is a lot of new entrants in any given year, what are what are some of the practical tips or what's a story of we thought it was going to be this, but then it ended up being that that got us our first ones. Yeah, so there's tons.
1: I think the first insight and biggest mistake we made was delaying distribution. You have probably heard a long time ago, 2009 or like an eternity ago in our world, Paul Graham said, if, you know, if you build a good product, they will come. And there's nothing that could be less true now. And Paul Graham is obviously a, a, a genius at, at building businesses like this, but it, it, the, the insight has become completely irrelevant. And I think now in 2021, building product has been almost democratized or there's very few entry barriers. You can go and create an AWS account. There's no code tools. There's all sorts of early startup programs. Anyone can build product, honestly. Yes, there's a lot of iterations to build a really great product, but nothing's stopping you. The real entry barrier is distribution. And we didn't know that. We, we we were very, very product focused. So we solved the problem for ourselves. We went to friends and family, got our first 10 customers. They really liked it. But the next step, was by far the hardest and we did not expect that and if you ask me what i would do next time around i would start with distribution i would build a landing page i would build a no-code version i would build a prototype or a real mvp as quick as i can and focus everything on distribution and there's lots of great businesses out there that are really just marketing businesses their product itself isn't that differentiated but their market positioning and the way they market is and that's where the value is so i, I think that's 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 lesson one and, and probably our strongest strongest lesson the mistake we made so when we played catch up if you like when we said okay we've got 10 friends and family or or friends of friends that are using q on getting value out of that how do we make that into hundred a thousand ten thousand and now a hundred thousand we're focused on um, that that for us has been the the, the biggest challenge so how did we do that? Um, I think there's two. There's two things. One is the fundamentals still apply. It still blows my mind how well content marketing works, and 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 the sort of typical B two B marketing playbook. I I would have thought by now it'd be done to death, and 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 no room to innovate and grow. And that's not the case. Literally doing what everyone does and what the book says still works to some extent. You don't have to reinvent the wheel or differentiate for the sake of differentiating. We. We have tens and tens of thousands of unique um, visitors come to us every month from reading a blog post about something meeting related or or related to the way teams work. And a good portion of them convert to become Hugo users. And it's a no-known. It's low risk. It grows incrementally. It's value for the company. There's no cost to it um, other than obviously writing the content. So I think one of another mistake there and an opportunity is to do what works, not have to have these crazy out there ideas. And the second thing I was going to say that's sort of been responsible for our growth there is baking distribution into the product as well. So the best businesses, we were talking about Zoom a moment ago, Calendly is another example. These are product-led businesses. They're, 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 they grow through product-led growth. The first time I send you a Calendly link to schedule a meeting, You, on the other side, never seen it before, you book your meeting and think, wow, this is really cool. We just saved all this time. That was a great experience. I'll check out Calendly. The first time you hop off your Zoom call, you're like, man, it didn't cut out. I could hear him the whole time. It wasn't... It, it it didn't. I didn't have all the usual problems I've had with every other video conference tool I've used. I'm gonna check out this Zoom thing. You create a free account. You can use it for forty minute calls, and, and, and off you go. So product led growth is certainly the the you know the the the, the tune of, of, of the twenties if you like that Everyone's talking about now, and for good reason. But it's not something you can tack on at the end. It's got to be core to your product. And for us that was something we, we we really thought about early on that one wasn't such a mistake and we have baked that in heavily we're both for teams expanding so for every one user we acquire we can go and acquire another 9 10 11 and and, and so on and grow the team and also between teams where you're sharing out your meeting notes you're preparing for your meetings and you're, you're doing that with other meeting attendees who aren't hugo users and they in turn become hugo users so they're the sort of two i guess. Secrets, but not secrets to to our growth to date.
0: You know, I'm not that surprised that content marketing works for you and still works for you. Because when I look at most people's content marketing, they're measuring like how many posts did we put out? Not how helpful was our post, right? Exactly. Exactly. I
1: think it's uh you've got to think about the outcome rather than the means to an end.
0: I mean, there's companies
1: that have built I was talking to someone yesterday who showed me they'd done more than 20 million dollars in revenue off the back of one article they wrote. Why? Because it was it became like this anchor piece that was so foundational to their space that ranks so well that people keep citing, they keep refreshing it, and it's just their entire content marketing strategy was one post. They've tried to replicate it time and time again and they just can't. And then you've got these businesses that are total machines They have Ten people riding all day and night, and they've got such content, but it doesn't move the needle for them. So I think that's exactly right.
0: you know it's it's interesting that how willing people are to put money into volume over quality, you know, like you see that in YouTube, we're just we're just turning this show into a YouTube show and maybe a television show. And so we've just been we're painting the studio and we we're setting up studio lights last night. And my creative director is his full time job is as the head of video for for a news organization, and uh, we were talking about like you know that band OK Go yeah 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 those right? videos you think are unbelievable. about you think about you know the later videos are crazy with the slow motion and the airplanes and stuff but the early videos where it's just like a giant Rube Goldberg machine like yeah. that takes time but it didn't take a lot of money right
1: no I heard and... they shot them in one go. There was, like, no post prod. Apparently, yeah. Like, the umbrella one with the drone. Apparently, it was, like, end-to-end shot. So, it was done in, like, a couple of few hours. And these are, like, yeah, yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable videos. Yeah.
0: But you think about, like, the level of thinking of, like, that was not, like, some interns going, like, oh, what do we got to pump out this week for the video on the on the channel? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Right, Like, spending that time to go, like, what will grab people by the throat so they can't scroll past it? Like, yeah. unmissable content. You know, and like putting the time and effort in in a way that grabs attention, is wildly entertaining, it is novel. You know, they haven't seen people haven't seen it 50,000 times already, yeah. you know. And, you know, like they're good musicians. They're not Nirvana yeah. to me. And but look at just the absolute unfair advantage by willing to do what others weren't willing to do with content from a revenue standpoint, from a name brand standpoint, from a, all those things, you know?
1: Yeah. It's funny. I think, you know, to be completely honest, I, I totally agree. I think a good a good rule for me internally and for us is would I consume that myself? Like ultimately we represent our user persona to some extent. You write something, you put out an ebook or white paper. Is it like high quality enough that I would want to read it? And then when I read it, think, man, that was interesting. That's insightful. So I think that's a good rule of thumb. It's obviously assuming you match your persona. But to be fair, I think the problem you've got or we have um, with content is that on the other extreme, you can your rate of experimentation can really slow down. Then, so if mm. if you have such a high bar to to you know, let, let's say for example, if building a podcast is a great example. I think and podcasting obviously is obviously a great content channel in in twenty twenty one, and there's tons and tons of businesses that have started podcasts. Now, you have to go all in, right? You have to have really high quality content and audience and and a thesis and a theme. And otherwise, no one's going to consume that. No one's going to listen to that. But on the other side of the coin, that's an experiment that may just not work for your business. So what sort of time and cost do you invest in your podcast for something that you might throw out? And I don't have the answer. I, I struggle with that every day. I think we've been guilty so many times over of doing too much and not going deep enough. But then, when you go deep on it, you're obviously costing time and money, and you still need to know when to move on. So don't don't know if you've got any sort of se- secret sauce there, but I, I'm still figuring that one out.
0: You know, so I wanted to start this as a video show five years ago, like six hundred episodes ago, and people's people's connections just weren't good enough, and like repeatedly they'd be trying to do it over Wi-Fi, and it was just it was such a hassle. And so, like, I bought a $700 microphone, but it's a Rode NTG3. Yeah, I don't use it. I use a $60 ATR 2100 that anybody can get on Amazon. It's a great super calloid, so it doesn't pick up background noise. You know, you can spend a huge amount of money on mixing, or, like, I just bought a, you know, you can get a $200 Zoom H4n, you know? So, like, these days, I show people how to set up podcasting for, like, you know, a $60 mic, a $60 cord, a $200 recorder, and they can go. And Don't. it was just my placeholder. Like audio podcasting yeah. was my placeholder because video was too much of an investment at the time. <laughs> and now, like five hundred plus episodes later, we're finally getting to it. But there's just other business priorities that were a higher priority. And I could I like to talk. I can talk, so it was no big deal to just hop on and shoot the breeze. Right? We yeah. didn't have to prepare. Yeah. We didn't have to storyboard. It was because video content was too much for an too much of an investment at the time. Yeah. The, where we are business wise. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah,
1: absolutely. and And I think there's so many parallel examples there. I, I think you know. Even we spoke earlier about testing out ideas early on, and the no-code movement. It's it's much the same. That used to be a really big decision a few years ago. I want to launch a website. I got to go and find designers. I got to find developers, engineers. I got to build the infrastructure and in the web server. Now, like you know, you can go. You got your Squarespace and whatever the world. But even Webflow now, which we live and breathe by, you can spin up like industry-leading websites with 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 complexity and 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 much like what these companies would spend millions of dollars on as recently. As five years ago for 30 bucks in a few hours. And having all those barriers dropped is just completely changing the rate of innovation.
0: I didn't really know about Webflow until this year. It, it's incredible, isn't it? Uh. It is unbelievable. I you know, I i it's still, I think for us probably
1: one of the most transformative parts of our stack. And the reason is it's democratized web development. So, you know, the our the growth team at, at Hugo now can experiment and build stuff very, very fast. We're not competing for engineering resources, but you're not giving up sort of functionality or, or potential and power. You know, historically when you when you when you settle for something like that, let's say Squarespace, which is great for many businesses, but for a software company, it just doesn't cut it. You have to give up all this power and potential. Webflow, you know, it's my running joke. Like anything you can do, I can do faster when I'm talking to engineers because I can do everything they can in code and and all of that, but in a fraction of the time. So yeah, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Webflow.
0: Yeah. Well, what's interesting for me is, you know, I took the very traditional route to finance. I'm an art school dropout. Okay. Yep, so yep. <laughs> I love my, my my inner illustration major. I was going to go do an entertainment design degree at at Art Center and draw for the movies, right? Concept illustrating one of my mentors had done that, you know, drew pictures for Men in Black and The Fifth Element and all this stuff that I thought was cool, right? Yeah. Right. And, and my now business partner, mentor of the last 20 years, he, he said he got me to drop out of art school partially by saying You realize if you got rich enough, you could draw pictures for whatever movies you want. Like you could just make, the movie could be about what you want it to be about and then draw the picture. But, you know, you look at Webflow and you go like, man, that, I I have this theory. I think it's going to turn into a book about how much money can be made by taking on the customer's struggle. It's like a survival instinct. If you can take on struggle, people will pay you for that, right? Like how great is Webflow doing because you can now compete with millions of dollars of talent. <laughs> for, yeah. for a low monthly payment, right? I mean, yeah. it's yeah, it's it's bringing a power tool like everybody else has got these really sharp axes, and you're showing up with a chainsaw. You know? Yeah, it's so funny.
1: I think another way, and you know, what you reminded me of then is sort of monetizing customer struggles or building business on customer struggles has been proven so many times. And, you know, I whatever's next for us, you know, after hopefully a good outcome with Hugo or wherever that ends up. I think all the time about that. Can we go and can we go and find other examples where there's such a personal struggle and all you need to do is address the struggle. You don't even need to innovate at a product level half the time. I think the CRM space is a great example. You've got Salesforce had like almost a decade head start or you know at least five, six years head start on everyone. It's the most powerful CRM out, out there. There's nothing it can't do. But as everyone knows, it's got a terrible reputation from a user experience standpoint. No one loves using Salesforce, I dare say. So. Um, and then you've got all these huge businesses that do the same thing as Salesforce, but just in a in a in a more painless way. There's no innovation. CRM as a product is is a no-known. It's needed. To, everyone understands how it works and Salesforce has got to define the full functionality set. But the pipe drives and coppers and and prosper well now freshworks and and all these other products are multi-hundred million, you know, dollars a year in revenue products just by focusing on the customer struggle. So I I totally, totally get that and agree.
0: You know, it's interesting as you say that here in the States with the new Jobs Act updates, right? Regulation CF, you can raise five million, regulation A plus, you can raise 75 million. Right. And the, you know, the real estate world in general has been kind of slow to adopt technology anyways, yeah, for sure. but, but certainly in finance, like, you know, the high priests of finance all live in wall street and they're not mm-hmm. super interested in that becoming a distributed thing where they're not so necessary. And so it's really easy to just look down your nose on them, right? Look down yeah. your nose on jobs, Act stuff. And, and besides it's not, it's not to the scale where you're seeing the tens of billions of dollars transactions that way yet. So that's not going to, they don't care because that's what they get their bonus on. Not seeing what's on its way, right? Yeah. But I look at, I look at these people, you know, fundraise, for instance, in our space. I think they're raising like, last stat I hit is they, they're they averaging between a million to $2 million a day in fundraising.
1: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Without
0: talking to the client. Yeah. It's just it, it, you know, it's just by having a great website that answers the right questions, makes them feel comfortable, feels kind of like tech forward for the next generation, reduces the friction. It's got tons of content marketing, you know, origin investments, diversity fund. There's a number of these guys that like they're they're kind of coming after the old guard in a way the old guard is not prepared for it at all because yeah. you don't have to have a you don't have to have sit through a pitch at a steak dinner. Yeah. you don't have to wait and read the you know wait for them to send you these big you know 200 page documents like you say at home like while you're surf while you're watching netflix you're you're picking your real estate investment on your phone you know what i mean like yeah you don't have this sales guy that you've got to repel you know what i mean it, it, it just the friction the friction just gets reduced over and over and yeah. as it's around longer and it's bigger and it's becoming more credible you know it just got such an opportunity
1: yeah absolutely and and you've got access to deals and opportunities you know beyond 20 a 20 mile radius of where you live in manhattan you know and i think that's right but you know the problem you have is the the typical innovators dilemma right for wall street they've had such success over so many generations doing things this way and that's why you you see startups like us hopefully disrupting the large incumbents because how can they justify innovating and risking the risking everything for new ways of doing things when that's what's provided the the you know the the bread and butter for so so many generations
0: and that's why i think it takes generational change yeah you know and there's parts of it that will never go away. You know, Blackstone, you know, is kind of the big, big name for alternatives in our space, right? They got yep, yep. a $20 billion check at, in one check from the Saudi sovereign wealth, Saudi yeah. sovereign wealth. Wow. That is unlikely to happen without in-person meetings. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there there, yeah. there, are aspects of that that are not likely to ever become, you know, a something that's happening while you're surfing Netflix, right? Yeah. But how, how does that have them discount the others that could, right? Yeah. And you know, I mean, literally yesterday, we decided on our new private placement memorandum, we're, we're following one of our mentors who's been really successful with the style of kind of bringing Warren Buffett investing to real estate, go after the stuff that's not popular where you can buy deals, right? And we're literally almost copying that PPM word for word. And we actually hired the same lawyers. He's He gave us his paperwork and said, you should do what I'm doing. It's it's working to the point of a couple hundred million bucks at this point, right? And yesterday we literally decided to drop the hundred thousand dollar minimum and make it a ten dollar minimum, so that so that we could really take advantage of that. Yeah. You know? And there there's like a prestige thing of saying like, oh, it's hundred thousand minimum to get into our stuff, right? And yet yeah. we're just making it a friction point for for people who might yeah. put their toe in the water now let us pay them a good quarterly check for a few quarters and they put put in more later,
1: right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. It's funny, the prestige and protectionism, I think is part of the problem in, in so many parts of the corporate world. I mean, the same goes for, for the way you work, right? I, I used to do 18-hour days, you know, six days a week as a lawyer, and I'm sure you're the same in, in banking, in, in m and And you start to wonder now whether we've, so much has changed about the way we work, the tools, the processes, software and technology available to us. Do you still need to do that? Right, like you know, from an analyst output perspective, is it necessary to to be doing hundred hour weeks to to drive a certain outcome? And the answer, you know, you, many people would say no, of course. Or or is it as sustainable? Can we get better results over a five or ten year period by not pushing analysts to work hundred hour weeks? But the rite of passage, the way we've always done it, those sorts of things really trump things in a corporate you know in a, in, a, in a corporate setting, right? I'm an MD who's been killing myself for 15 years, so so should you, even though it might it. it probably always has a worse business outcome. And I think it's much the same as, you know, the, the, the example you're giving where it, it, it is pretty unimpressive in them through an old lens to have no minimum, no minimum investment. How good a fund or opportunity is this if anyone can walk right in who doesn't have a certain network? But the reality is, is that true? You know, and, 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 and uh, I think I think it's super interesting.
0: Yeah, you know, in our case, we're doing what's called a 506C, Regulation D 506C, so I can advertise it to anybody, but the first one, I can only accept money from accredited investors. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. Just legally. Yeah. But if they're accredited, I don't know. Like people, people say, oh my, you don't want to have a whole bunch of small investors. You know what a headache that is. Right. Yeah. And you're like, well, listen, I have, I have a third party administrator. I have digital CRMs. We have direct deposit. Exactly. This is not, it's not. This is not the headache it was 15 years ago when that statement yeah. was extremely true. You know like yeah. the incremental cost of additional investors these days is is not the headache it used to be but yeah. the mindset you know the technology pr- progresses so much faster than the mindset Yeah. and yet that's right. I'm such a believer in this and yet we were debating keeping the $100,000 minimum yesterday yeah yeah you know? unbelievable and like we have to, you yeah. know the same
1: thing happens for us at Hugo. We have people paying $8 a month, right? You're like, why would you bother for $8 a month? I can't, you know, you can barely get a coffee in San Francisco for eight bucks. And with that, you've got obviously some sort of small infrastructure costs, but you've got support, customer success, everything that comes with that. And if five years ago, I would have agreed, it's just not worth it losing money there. But sure that $8 a month when you look a month, two, three down the track, the example I gave you at the beginning about these growing startups, they can be multi, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month in no time, and the cost of supporting them is next to nothing now. Automate, automated emails and triggers and, and the CRMs and tools we're using really reduces that cost to nothing. And it's it parallels exactly in, in, in my eyes. That that argument isn't valid anymore. The only argument that I see is the prestige. And I I think that's something that's generational and something we're caring a lot less about as that as you know, sort of our generation becomes the, the incumbent and and so on.
0: You know, the the three people I most wanted to get on the podcast were. Warren Buffett, Richard Branson, and then much less known, uh, Richard Koch, the guy that wrote the 80-20 principle, yep. the original. Yep. Right. And yeah. I just got him on like two weeks ago. And it That's was a such lot. a high for me because, you know, here's a guy who takes, sells his consulting firm for, I don't know, $16 million and turns it into hundreds of millions with this, but just has influenced so many people by repopularizing the concept, yeah. right? And it's funny because I've got essentially a media company that generates leads for our investment company, right? Mm -hmm. And the more time I spend with people I respect on the show, the more I think, ah, we should really just become tech companies. We should become a tech media company partnered with our tech-driven alternative asset management real estate firm, Mm. you know? Because that's where the leverage is. Like, I had this really simple statement plastered on the wall behind my computer monitor for like three years. A guy who sold Omniture to Adobe for 1.8 billion, mm-hmm. Johnny Pistana. And he said, like, the whole reason that was possible is he was busy making websites, and their buddy came over and said like oh it's great you're making good money i'm making money while i sleep and says whatever business he's doing and he's like i want to make money while i sleep and that became yeah. like, like maniacal focus yeah for x number of years until like they're signing up new clients without talking to them they're servicing clients without talking to them they're supporting clients without talking to them and all the brain power is on architecting the next level you know yeah. not all of it but, but virtually yeah to yeah. the point that adobe gives the two of them a check for 1.8 billion yeah. you know yeah, that's and, what I mean, anyway. yeah, That's
1: part of my that, that definitely I, motivates and inspires me in the same way. And you know, it, mm-hmm. it's at the polar opposite of professional services, right? That that's that's the antithesis of what professional services is, like making money while you're awake versus while you're asleep. But but I think the interesting point there as well is that what is a tech company in 2021, right? Like every business is becoming more and more tech enabled. So whether you're an accountant that works with startups like the firm we use for for Hugo, whether you're a a lawyer that has an interface for answering questions quickly and then putting your time into the the higher value strategic stuff, or whether you're a traditional software company or, or media company, we're using software in everything we do. And I almost now don't think about myself in tech anymore. I think about myself in productivity software or, or meeting software sure but whatever i do i'm going to be in tech I, I i think you know the the new arts degree is a software engineering degree or a data science degree because it's just what you need to be a successful executive to unlock efficiencies and and and, and be productive whether you know whatever industry you're going into
0: yeah for me it's a mindset right like i just hired a ceo who was it a big seven billion dollar real estate investment trust and they came out to a two billion dollar one now he's at a 30 billion dollar private that we're stealing him from? And like he's bought or developed over two billion dollars worth of properties over the last 18 years, right? And to me, it's like a mindset. It's like does our whole company think about ourselves in terms of how can we find and how can we find and take care of clients without talking to them? How can we like have this incredibly magnetic, seamless frictionless electromagnet that brings people that is not you know and that's I don't know that it's any different except that you it's like the mental mental sport feels different it's like what sport are we playing here you know are we a real estate company yeah. or you know a real estate company that uses technology or are we something else you know
1: yeah yeah i 100 percent agree it's that paradigm shift and everything i was saying earlier about no code is, is pushing that i don't need to be a software engineer now to do that you can always find a way within your skill set to achieve those outcomes you just need that paradigm shift to think about how can we do this in a in a more scalable more efficient tech enabled way and so yeah I, I think that's the challenge of a modern
0: ceo to drive that thinking so who who are the thought leaders you like these days who who are the books you read who's the blogs you read who, yeah. who do you like
1: yeah i been very i've been getting very into those that talk about teams and 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 uh, empowering teams in the way they work i think there's uh a few really impressive people that that i'm sort of religiously wedded to i, I think one is farnham street blog and they, they're at Farnham Street, Shane, who, who, who writes for that, also, also Canadian, he, 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 he shares stories from over the years and really practical tips each week on, on team processes and, and practices. And we've got some pretty cool ideas there that have been transformative for us, things like the team decision log. Well, he talks about it individually and we've adapted it for the team where we, every time you make a critical decision, you log that decision and it asks about the decision, the rationale, what the expected outcome and the time for reassessment. And what that does is it reduces any sort of revisionist history or, or bias as to what you thought would happen. It's there, black and white. I decided to do this because I thought this is what was going to happen. Here's what I was thinking at the time and here's when I'll know if it's successful or not. And you then look back at it in in black and white letters, what you're thinking at the time and you can actually truly learn from from your decision rather than the human nature thing we all do where we you know reverse engineer what we were actually thought wish we were thinking at the time as to why we made that decision and the benefit with the team by the way is that uh you get to share you know share consciousness and people start to think like you and understand how you make decisions so that came from that came from Farnham Street so big fan of their blog added books team of teams is a book that we read I read about a year ago and it's, it's been very informative General Stanley McChrystal's book and there's some great concepts there shared consciousness I just touched on eyes on hands off was a great tip for me as a leader so highly recommend that one and the other one, I think that's a bit more business oriented, a slightly further away. And it is team perspective team specific, but, but for closer to the, the way we operate our business is the an- is anti fragile. And uh, you know the, the, uh, that spectrum, like what is the opposite of of fragile? It's not necessarily robust. It's it's anti fragile. And how do you build an anti fragile organization? And I think COVID has been the perfect sort of. Testing ground or or, or, or situation to, to to test that and think about. So big big fan of anti fragile as well. In fact, whenever anyone starts a Hugo, we send them a pile of books to read, and those two are definitely at the top.
0: I was talking to my fourteen year old yesterday about that concept and saying like, you know, if we're smart, son, one of the businesses that our family should start is a school for cyber warfare training and and you know, countering just different scams and stuff that happens on on a line these days because it's just going to be such a growth industry. Like this is like, you do not need a crystal ball to go like, Hey, when state actors like North Korea are stealing money from American businesses And winning, they're probably going to keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, like this is—you do not need a crystal ball to go like if the world goes if if things get really bad, those you know those students or those contractors that we could we could train are only going to become in more demand. As you know, look at look at solar winds and you know if the Russians have the ability to turn our sewer backwards and nobody realizes it until after they get sick, that is, yeah, that's that's as bad as some some pretty tough things out there, like. This is a, you know, there's demand for it now. And if the world gets crazier, the demand only increases, right? That's right. But we're
1: still thinking about, yeah, warfare in terms of weapons and physical training and and things like that. And that's where our investment is. So yeah, anticipating that, I think. Makes a ton of sense, but like, you know, like, like all, all humans, we're sort of waiting and, and, and doing things in, you know,
0: playing catch up. So oh, I, I, I'm on board,
1: board right? let, let me know when you build, when you build the firm, I am uh, would lo- love to invest.
0: Well, when it comes to like product first marketing, product led marketing, who are your thought leaders you like there?
1: Yeah. So there's, there's, okay. So there's a, there's a ton. I think there's a, there's a fund called Open View Partners. They are a sort of series A B. Onwards, so VC VC fund who have completely their entire investment thesis is around product-led growth companies. They do a great job in terms of content because of that, and they're in Lee and a bunch of others. But highly recommend reading some of their stuff. They're probably up there with the the best sort of thought leaders from a content standpoint out of all the VCs that that I've I've seen. So OpenView is is, is a great one there. Andrew Chen, who's an, uh, a partner at Sequoia and ex-Uber in the early days of Uber and ran growth there, is another great person as far as content on product-led growth and, and, and the like. I'm trying to think who else I've been reading lately. I, I think the other the other perspective is finding the founders and the people who are doing a great job at the moment. And often they don't have a sophisticated content machine telling the story of how they're doing it, but we've learned so much. I mean, there's an email client called Superhuman. You may have seen they had a full page in the New York Times, a full page story in the New York Times a little while ago, and they got in a bit of trouble over it. But they've, they've built a, an email client that replaces Gmail and it costs 30 bucks a month. And that's crazy in a world where you get email for free. We don't pay for email anymore. And they've they, they they've completely gone with the customer delight thing. You're willing to pay $30 for something that you get for free for a better user experience. And they uh, they've sort of made famous this product market fit score where you you ask customers instead of an NPS score. And their promoter score, you ask customers how disappointed would they be if your product no longer existed? Very somewhat or not disappointed at all. And the name of the game is to basically have a large portion, they say more than 40% of your customer base, very disappointed. And you can then go on to ask them some more questions. Who's the best for? What's the primary value they get out of it? What would they do without it? And that for us, Hugo has been been really helpful. But I'm always trying to find those stories from, from founders in the midst of it who are sharing what's working for them right then and now. Because a lot of the time by the time someone's moved beyond operating or moved to the book writing stage, it's it's no longer relevant.
0: I love it. Well, listen, congrats on all the success. You should come back on the show next year and tell us about the progress you made and uh, (laughs) just stay in touch in general.
1: Definitely. Thanks so much, Jess. Great conversation. I really, really enjoyed catching up.
0: You bet. Thanks for making time for it. Bye, Bye, everyone.